If I haven't met you, I'm Rob. I get to serve as one of the pastors. We're going to be in Hosea chapter 3, page 752 in the Bibles in front of you. Before we hear from God's word, let's, let's go to him in prayer. Father, we're grateful that you would speak. And so as we come to your word, would you, would you help us to hear it, not merely as ink on a page, but what it really is, your living and active word, that this text today would comfort us, that it would invite us back, that it would remind us of how safe we are before you, because of you. God, when we gather on, on a Sunday to hear your word, we want to be challenged, we want to grow, and we want to learn. We, we, we come with so many expectations, but what we need most is that we would have an encounter with you, our living God, and with your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Don't allow anyone to leave this place unchanged. May we leave more impressed, more grateful, more amazed, more stunned, more overwhelmed by the work of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. James Boyce begins his commentary on Hosea 3 saying this. He says, the third chapter of Hosea is, in my judgment, the greatest chapter in the Bible. I'm close to agreeing. It was hard to pick my favorite chapter of the Bible, so I stole his, um, his title, and I just put a question mark on the end of it. It's just five verses. Um, it's one of the most heartwarming stories between uh, a faithful husband and a wandering wife. And in it, what we're going to see is the unbreakable love that Jesus has for his bride. We'll see the infinitely costly love that Jesus has for his church. We're going to see the transforming power of God's love for, for all that would come to him. Unbreakable love, costly love, transforming love. If you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you stand with me? Hosea chapter three. And the Lord said to me, go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer of alethics of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Feel free to grab a seat. Verse 1 starts in a, a really powerful and curious way. Go again and love a woman who's loved by another man. And then there's this comparison to even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. It's, it's kind of a, of a strange 
application. Tim Chester asks this question. He says, in the midst of, of heartbreak caused by infidelity, why start talking about cake? Um, it seems ridiculous. And that's the point. Likely what was happening here is these cakes of raisins were something that were, were used to, to worship a, a pagan, a false god named Baal. So they would go and they would worship him. And then after the ceremony, then they would eat the cakes. And, and Chester, he makes this point. It, it would be like leaving a, a church that is, that is orthodox, that, that believes the Bible and believes the gospel because there's a, 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 another religion down the street that serves better donuts. And it's saying, that's how lightly my people treat me. That's how silly they can be sometimes. That's how little I mean to them. That better pastries would lead them away. And that's what makes what God does in pursuing us that much more stunning. Hosea's pursuit and love of his wife Gomer is an enacted parable. He's living out in, in, in flesh and in blood, in relationship and reality. God's incredible pursuit of, of us. One of the things that he's, he's doing in chapter three here is it's actually illustrating what was declared in chapter two, in Hosea 2, 9 through 20. I think we'll put this up on the screen. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love, and in mercy, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. We see this word betroth three times that, that I will betroth in forever, in righteousness, and justice, in, in mercy, and faithfulness. These are incredible words. It's saying, my, my, my commitment to you is perfect, and purifying, and permanent. There's a ton we could say about this. I want to look at just one phrase here that's actually one word in, in, in Hebrew and just draw a couple things out. This, this phrase, steadfast love, it's from a really, really loaded, powerful word, um, hesed. It's an incredible Hebrew word that, that means hesed or, or hesed. It, it means um, covenant faithfulness. It means loyalty. Loving kindness. Long-suffering, it's the title of um, one of my favorite songs by a group called Ghost Ship that we'll actually listen to after the sermon. And there's this refrain in that song that goes on and on. It says, we cannot break his love. Hosea 3 shows that. No matter what Gomer did, she couldn't break the love that Hosea had for her. As God's people wander for such stupid reasons, he still goes after him. Two weeks ago, I, um, I shared a story about a, a husband I met within about the first month of being a pastor. Um, this is almost 19 years ago, and I still remember the meeting because it was so powerful to me. I'm sitting there, he comes in, and, and he sits in a chair in my office, and he just kind of hangs his head, and he, and he sighs. He began to tell me about his marriage, and, and he just said, my, my wife has just become so unfaithful. She just continues to, to cheat on me. But I don't want to leave her. I mean, she's my wife. What I didn't tell you, though, is what he began to say next. He said, what it, but, but, but everyone is telling me, all my friends and my family are telling me to just get out. 
just be done. She's not worth it. So I asked myself, well, what do you want to do? And again, he said, I don't want her to be gone. I want her back. She's my wife. I think why I remember that story so much is that what he was doing is he was loving her like Jesus loves me. He was loving her like Jesus loves you. Think why Boy says Hosea 3 is the most beautiful chapter in the Bible is because in it we see the love of God who loves foolish, wandering people again and again and again. You cannot break his love. Now, I'm not giving a mandate for, for marriage um, and how this text applies and all those things. That's probably for another sermon. And this is complicated and it's heavy in real life. But that's the point. And it's so complicated, and it's so heavy, and it's so emotional, and it's so raw that over the history of the church, it's, it's really curious how many um, Bible teachers would look at Hosea 3 and say, it wasn't really a real story. It didn't really happen. A prophet of God wouldn't really go and, and, and do this. And I think behind that is because there's this, this sensibility that it just, it feels scandalous to compare God's love to this. Some people would say it's like Hosea 3 is like an embellished sermon illustration, which preachers never do, by the way. I think, why is it so hard to believe it's real? Because it feels so unbelievable. But that's the point. We don't even say it feels reckless for God to love like this. We'll sing a song after the sermon, The Reckless Love of God, and it was interesting. I think it came out in like 2017, 2018, something like that, and it was interesting because there was some, some people love it, some people don't love it, some people aren't sure what to do with it, but we sing this like this overwhelming, reckless love of God, and there's this visceral reaction we have of God's love isn't reckless. Sam Storms um, wrote an article in response to it back in 2008, the reckless love of God, should we sing it? And he says it this way, and he says, I take the word reckless to mean that God's love defies all human categories of how love ought to operate and express itself. God loves sinners in the most unconventional and seemingly unsophisticated manner possible. Reckless can be without regard to the consequence to the self. Corey Asbury, the author of the song, wrote this. He said, God isn't concerned with what it might cost him in terms of his reputation among people. He isn't concerned with the consequences that might come his way when those he loves don't love him in return. God's love is anything but cautious. Every time people gossiped or murmured when they looked at Hosea as he walked around with Gomer, as he went and got her again, as he claimed her and brought her home, and you know it would happen. You know what she did? What a fool. Hosea is a chump. How gullible. And every single time, is an opportunity to say, oh, look at the love of God. Look at the unbreakable love of God. 
I heard this, um, this story, this sermon illustration from, from Matt Chandler. I was watching a video a couple months ago and um, talks about when he was a freshman in college. Um, he ended up sitting next to um, a, a woman who was about 27 years old, a single mom who was going back to school and he began to form a relationship with her, and, and, and she had no background in the church, didn't, never really heard the gospel, didn't understand who God was or who Jesus was and, and what grace was like. And so he began to, to, to share some of these aspects about the grace of God and the Christian faith. And, and he, he, uh, one of his buddies was in a band, and he said, oh, my, my buddy's playing a, a concert at a church. Why don't you come with me? You know, and he obviously knew that he was setting her up to like go to like a gospel presentation, and so he's like, "Come with me." And so they they go to um they go to this this show, this concert, and they're they're sitting there, and the band plays, and the the preacher gets up, and and there was about a thousand college and high school students there, and it ended up being um, there's this whole movement in the church, this like purity movement, where where we're trying to tell people like doing anything physical is so bad and, and there ends up being a lot of shame and guilt and, and just, so this guy gets up there and he, and he, and he, starts, uh, he starts talking and he, and, he, and he pulls out this rose. He says, oh, look at this rose. This rose is beautiful. So look, at, look at the petals there. They're soft to touch. And he smells it. So oh, it smells incredible. He says, you all, you all need to see how good this rose is. So he hands the, the, the rose down to the front row. He says, you know, smell it, touch it, look at it, and, and then pass it. And, and so they begin to pass it, and he goes for like half an hour of just, 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 just kind of just angry and berating and yelling and warning and shaming. He's doing all this, and, and as he's sitting there, he's sitting next to his friend that he just met, this 27-year-old woman who's actually in an extramarital affair at the time. And... Um, and, he, and, and Matt says he's just, getting, he's just getting angrier and angrier. And eventually the rose comes around and he gets to the end of the sermon. This, this, this preacher's up front, he gets to the end of the sermon, he gets to the climax of the sermon and the point of everything he's talking about. He says, okay, give me the, I need my rose back. Give me my rose back. Someone hands him the rose and at this point, after going through a thousand hands, it's broken. The petals are mostly gone and they're wilted and it's dirty. And then his punchline is this. He stands there in front of this room and he says, who would ever want this rose? And Chandler recounts this moment where he just broke. He's just sitting there and he goes, I'm so angry in this moment and I want to stand up and I want to yell at this guy, Jesus wants the rose. That's the point of the gospel. Jesus wants it. I've sat in my office for 19 years watching God's people hang their heads in shame and sorrow because the truth of a text like this just feels so unbelievable that Jesus actually wants the rose, that he would go again in love. When we go after stupid things. I love in this text, it says, is loved by another, is an adult, that is is present. When Hosea went to Gomer, she was in the middle of sin. 
It was go love her right now. Romans 5.8 says this, but God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. I love that word while. I spend a lot of my life in that while. But we can't break his love. I'm going to try to make this even better um, than God loves you. His steadfast, unbreakable commitment to us is truly incredible, and his mercy and his faithfulness is unending and amazing. But there's more going on in this text. When we hear this word love, I think where at least I went initially as I looked at a text like this and where probably a lot of us go is, is the type of love of God that is it's, it's, it's committed. It's not an emotion. It's not a feeling. That God loves us in, 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 in a way that it... it um, that it, it's, it's, it just goes on and on, and that's all true, and it's, it's committed, and it's coming out, and that's all true, but that's actually not the, the word love here. That's actually not what this, this word means only. This word love actually means this, to like. It's also used in the context to flirt, to endear, to delight, to desire. It can be translated to breathe after. I love this definition of it for all those people that like British shows in the room. To dally. We see it not just with the lexical range of the word, but actually this comparison to, it's the same word love four times in verse one when they love cakes of raisins. When you love a cake of raisins, I wish it was like bacon. You go after bacon. Um, But I'm not dutifully committed to bacon, but I sure enjoy it. Judson, um, my youngest son, was, we were hanging out, uh, doing breakfast this week, and and he's getting baptized on Easter, which is super awesome. And, And we were talking about baptism, and then we were talking about the Christian life, and he said, Dad, what's, what's like the hardest thing for you about being a Christian? And my first thought, my most immediate thought was, um, I just sin so much. Like, that's, that's the first thing I thought. But then I said, you know, Judson, actually the hardest thing for me about being a Christian is to believe that God actually likes me. And he said, me too. Years ago, I was tucking in, doing prayer time and tucking with another one of my kids. And, and I've shared this story a number of times, but it just hit me so, so heavy. I'm tucking him in and just like rubbing his back, praying with him. I said, hey, buddy, I love you so much. It's like, oh, daddy, I know that you love me. And then I felt like the spirit was prompting me to say something else. And I, I, I just said, hey, I really like you. Just began to kind of weep. It's like, you like me? I think it's actually easier for most of us in this room to know that God loves us. It's really hard for, him, for us to think he likes us. He's dutifully committed to us. He's an upright God. But that he actually delights in us. He actually desires us. That's what Hosea was doing. He went not because he was just dutifully committed, because he desired his wife. 
We cannot break his love. Verse 2 shows us the extent of this love. So I, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and some barley. Um, we don't know the exact condition of what had happened for, for, for Gomer, for Hosea's wife. We don't know how she ended up in the spot she's in, that it wasn't just a, an extramarital affair, that somehow she had gotten herself in the spot where she couldn't get out. She had been, become um, enslaved in some way and actually had to be bought or, or redeemed out of, of that life. And she somehow had gotten to this place of, of, of being helpless, needing to be rescued, needing to be emancipated. And here we actually see some incredible connections with the gospel of Christ. 1 Corinthians 6 uses language like this, you were bought with a price. That the work of Christ was to, to, to come and do something, to give something so that we might be emancipated because we too are, are helpless and vulnerable and, and open to abuse and, and unprotected. And so we, someone had to come in and, and buy us out of that condition that we might be set free. This is all over the Bible, but I'll give you just one text. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19 says this, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, listen to this, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Hosea goes and he brings silver and he brings barley and he says, this is the, the cost to get my wife so she can be released from her debts and be brought back into my home so that she can dwell as mine and I can be hers. And what First Peter says and what Christ did in the gospel is he gave something of infinite value that you might be purchased and brought out of captivity to, 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 to rebellion and sin and darkness and the evil one. Oh, this is, this is an unbreakable love, and it is a costly love. It took the very blood of Christ given for you and for me that we might be emancipated out. Oh, how he loves us. That Christ would come. Obey the Father, follow the commands, living in righteousness, and then he would go to a cross where his veins were opened. That's the, that's the dowry that betrothed you to him in faithfulness and righteousness. That's what he paid. Jesus wants the rose. So he goes and it says, I bought, but so I bought her. This was immensely personal. Don't, don't, don't miss this, this application. This was immensely personal. This wasn't just loving in concept. This was loving in reality. Far too many Christians live in this ever-present state of shame and embarrassment, of fear and of guilt. It's constantly weighed down by our histories. Feels like we're we're constantly owned by our everyday choices. You know, my self talk is is um, could use a revamp. Most of the time, it's not that that great. You know, maybe maybe you do this. Hopefully not. Likely some of you do. You know, sometimes I'll stare in the mirror. I'll kind of look myself dead in the eyes. Just be like, you suck. 
just berate myself. Came across a tweet of a few years ago that would be really good medicine if I would take it more often. Priscilla Schur says it like this. She says, the names that God calls you are the only ones you should be answering to. In this text, there's a, there's a real big difference between your identity and your activity. This text makes note, it says, Gomer, she played a certain role. She was doing a certain thing, but it doesn't say that's who she was. There could be descriptions added to who she is, but that doesn't, that doesn't define who she is at an identity level. Here's what was more true of her. She was Hosea's wife. So he says, you're going to come home because you're mine. That's what was true. We sin, we wander, we're prone to wander. We do shameful things, we dishonor God, but here is what's most true of you. Jesus looks at us while sinning. Like right while you're in the middle of it. He says, mine. And he says, beloved. He says, you're my people. You're my flock. You're my friend. You're forgiven. I've betrothed you to me. We cannot break his love. Love the flow of this passage that it, you're pursued, you're loved, you're redeemed, you're restored, you're renewed. He says, you're going to come home with me. You're going to be my wife, and I'm going to be your husband. So I will be that to you. This unbreakable love, this costly love. And then it, then it shifts on in, in verses 4 and 5 into this transforming love, that there's change that takes place. Verse 4 might feel sort of out of place, but it illustrates something stunning. For the children of Israel, they should dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. What this is talking about most immediately is when God's people went off into exile. That they, they were carried off because of their wandering and their, their, their foolishness and their rebellion and their, their sin. And so this is a time when there was no king. There's, they, they were carried away from their temple. There's no ephod, which is part of the priestly garments. It's saying the, the worship in the temple has stopped and they're, they're far away from, from God's land. But here's something we can see from a text like this and from the promises of God and his ever-present faithfulness is they were never far from his heart. And it's no different for God and his people now. Now, it may, it may, this may come as a surprise to you, uh, but my wife, Katie, and I, we sometimes fight. Sometimes we get into little squabbles and arguments. But when we're fighting, guess what? We're still 100% married. Like our communion is kind of messed up. Like our interaction isn't the way we want it to be. And sometimes you get mad and you... You know, for me, I, I'm a powder, so I'll get kind of frustrated, and I'll go in the garage, and I'll shut the door, and I'll sit on the step doing this. <laughs> I keep thinking I need to get a fridge in my garage. Um, I sit there and pout. Katie's in the other room. I'm in the garage in the dark, pouting without a fridge. <laughs> We're not together. 
but our union is still true. Our covenant still holds. It's the same thing when when Gomer wandered away from Hosea into all sorts of self-afflicting foolishness. She was still Gomer's wife, or still Hosea's wife. The union was still true. This is part of the beautiful language in the Bible of being in Christ, being united to him in Christ, that you can never be more connected than through faith in Christ. Whatever you're doing, wherever you're wanting, oh, it will mess up the communion a ton. But it can never take away the union. You cannot break his love. Pursued, loved, redeemed, restored, renewed, and then transformed. That's how this text ends. I read something recently by a guy named James Smith. He says, we, we can't will ourselves or we can't think ourselves to new hungers. We can't do that. But here's what we can be. We can be loved into them. We can be loved into hungering differently. And that's what we see in this text. Afterward, the children of Israel, they shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. They actually come back. The wandering doesn't have to win. They return, they come and seek, and, and this little phrase that they shall come in fear of the Lord, it might feel like a, I don't know, like kind of a letdown after so many beautiful aspects of this text. They would come in, in, in fear, but it's the natural outflow of being overwhelmed by the love of God and Jesus. Michael Reeves in his book, Rejoice and Tremble, fantastic book, The Good News of the Fear of the Lord, says this, he says, for the nature of the living God means that the fear which pleases him is not a groveling, shrinking fear. He is no tyrant. It is an ecstasy of love and joy that senses how overwhelmingly kind and magnificent, good and true God is and that therefore leans on him in staggered praise and faith. Or again, he says this, it is a blessed confusion. Oh, God's so good. He's so gracious. He's so amazing. And I come and I tremble. It's a blessed confusion made of sweet tears in which God's grace and kindness shown to you at the cross make you weep at your wickedness. You simultaneously repent and rejoice. His mercy accentuates his grace, leading you to a deeper and more fearfully happy adoration of the Savior. Kelly Capib, in his book, You're Only Human, I'm only like, I'm like four-fifths through that book, so I don't want to tell you it's a phenomenal book, but so far it has been a wonderful book. Says it like this, he says, this is not so much fear of punishment, but a fear of ignoring or insulting the one we love and who loves us. And you're wondering, if you want to return, here's how it happens. See how you've been loved. See how, how perfectly, flawlessly you have been loved and you've been liked in Christ Jesus. And let it just melt you. Um, Friday morning as I was prepping this sermon, I was sitting at our, at our, our kitchen counter and I just had my hands, they just came off the keyboard. And they just kind of trembled. As I just looked at this text, because it just feels a little, a little too holy to touch. And I just kind of wept. 
You know, I was like, I can't preach this. Who's sufficient for these things? And then that afternoon, I went down to, to Makeworth, and I'm sitting up in the mezzanine, and I'm trying to work on it again, and I just, I, I just start crying. <laughs> I can't imagine the people around, they're like, boy, this guy needs a hug. <laughs> I was just so overwhelmed to being loved like this. This morning, as I'm on Sunday mornings, I get up and, and pray, and I kind of pray through the text, and I get ready, and I'm sitting in my, my living room, and I, I'm just, I'm like ugly crying. And I came and I talked to Corbin, who is sitting in, is in the center up here, who leads music for us, and we're kind of talking through the service. It was like seven minutes before the service, and I just start crying again. I was just overwhelmed that I cannot break his love. And, and then here was the, 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 the kind of response for me, tethered to the fear of the Lord, but I don't want to break his heart. How can I dishonor a God who's loved? How can, how can I wander from a God who's loved? And it just created a sense of awe. Is Hosea 3 the most beautiful chapter in the Bible? You can make the call for yourself, um, but I will cast my vote. That is an overwhelming, incredible display of this truth that we need to fly like a banner over all the shadow parts of our lives. You can not break his love. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you make us believe it? Would you put us right into this story without fear or embarrassment, without masking, without self-justifying? And help us learn to receive a love like this. That while we were sinners, Christ came and died for us. The greater love has none than this, than he should lay down his life for his friends. That we might remember that we did not first love God, but that he has loved us. That he has ransomed us with something so much more precious than silver or gold, but with the very blood of Christ that we're loved and liked. And that we've been betrothed to him forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.